This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Uma Pagan Ampake Pagan, and this is Bookmark. Joining me today, a blast from the past, Azura Rahman, former BFM, host of Style File. Ex-host. Ex-host, ex-host. I'm sorry. Ex-host um, not too much file. of a past, just about three months ago or so. But it does feel like it has been a lifetime or so, Uma. But it's great to have you back. And, 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 <laughs> it's you know, great to be back. With good reason, because this is something we've been wanting to do for a long time, ever since he released his first book. That he, of course, being Kevin Kwan, the author of Crazy Rich Asians. Azura and I had read the first book and we had a lot to say about it, but we just couldn't bring ourselves in front of a microphone to record it. He's now on the third book of his trilogy, the third and final book. It's called Rich People Problems. It follows on from China Rich Girlfriend. Uh, There's a trend, obviously. All of the titles must have the word rich in it. Um, and yes, it's the, it's the final book in the trilogy and it launches just as they are filming in Singapore and KL the first movie in the Crazy Rich Asian saga starring Henry Golding and uh, Constance Wu. <laughs> well, you know, everything's just kind of come together intersecting at the same time with this book launching um, and also the filming happening at the same time. I think it's really peak Kevin Kwan mania at the moment or peak, I don't know, um, how shall I say it, um, Nick Young mania, which is, of course, the protagonist in this series of books. But you mentioned, yes, this is the final installment in the um, franchise. Can we say that, perhaps? I think so, trilogy. Right, trilogy. And um, it does seem quite finite at this point because I think with the first two books, you did get a sense of there's going to be a continuation. There's going to be you know, to be continued somewhere there. But this book is a bit more... Final, I think. In Crazy Rich Asians, uh, the story of the Young family and Nicholas Young, up and coming, heir to the throne, if you will, of a rich Singapore fortune. And it was very Asian, bold and the beautiful soap opera. I mean, that's the best way to describe it, right? I mean, lots of machinations with mother-in-laws and wanting to marry people who don't, who aren't cut from the same cloth and right. all of that stuff. Right. It's, it's Pretty it's universal very, stuff when you think about it. Yeah, it's very Bollywood. It's mm. very... Soap opera. Correct. You know, it's very Sinetron. It's very, how shall I say, Colombian soap opera as well at the same time. I think uh, we see a permutation of this in every culture, is universal in that sense. Um, Take the mother-in-law character across uh, all three of these novels, and I think you can see it in an Indian mother-in-law, you can see it in a Jewish mother-in-law, you can see it as that cliche and stereotype that runs through so much, I was going to say fiction, but actually just real life as well. And at the same time, when the first book came out, there was this huge fascination of the ultra-high net worth individual, the you know the one percenters, the zero point zero five percenters, and this was giving an Asian view of um, what these 0.05 percenters live like. And I suppose they are the ones who make up most of the Forbes richest list at the same time. So there is, you know, Kevin Kwan is an opportunist in that sense. He knows how to tap into the zeitgeist very well. Oh, he knows exactly what he's doing. He does, doesn't he? Oh, he's, and he's very, very cunning and smart about it as well. I mean, when the first book came out, I had issues with some of the localization in the book, and so did you. Yeah. Just the use of slang. And, the uh, spelling, the dodgy Malay spelling, for example. I remember the word hantam was spelled as H-U-N-T-U-M. So it, right. it took me a long time to understand what he was actually spelling out. So I think, you know, an editor would have been very useful at that point. For an example. Asian editor? Yes. But that being said, that being said, I'm not afraid to admit that this is 
on these three books have been something of guilty pleasure reading for me. And I've genuinely enjoyed all three of them. Do you know, I, I'm ashamed <laughs> to admit that I actually really, really like these books because for the exact same reasons, they are trashy. They are very trashy. I mean, it's that loving, bold and beautiful, which I did as well as a teenager. No, no, but it's but, not just trashy, right? It's, it's, it's clever trash in the sense yeah. that I know how Kevin Kwan is manipulating me. I'm yeah. very well aware of the strings he's pulling. And, and also not just me. I'm very well aware of the string he's pulling for the white Western audience as well. Right. You spoke about one percenters and 0.05 percenters or whatever. That's something that doesn't always appear in popular fiction, in movies, in television. Because, you know, you and I, we live in Asia. We know very well how insane the Asian rich people are and the kind of things they do. I remember... Not firsthand, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately. <laughs> One day, Azura. One, One day, day. Yes. Um, Unfortunately, we just weren't born into money. But I remember in the beginning of Crazy Rich Asians, in the prologue, there's a scene that kind of sums it up really, really well, where, you know, they are... Asian and they're victims of some racism at a London hotel and essentially the patriarch of the family calls up and buys the hotel. As one does, right? Um, and there's been many of those kind of instances in his books, this crazy jaw-dropping moments where, you know, um, money literally is thrown at the situation. I think um, in the latest installation of Rich People Problems, you have, you know, people having lunch in some very small cove in Bahamas and um, and of course, it's always the unassuming Asian. That's the setup. The unassuming Asian that is, you know, viewed from um, a white privileged perspective, thinking that, oh, you know, who's this, you know, crass Chinese person invading my space? And suddenly find out, boom, you know, he practically can own me and my family ten times over. So there's many of those kind of situations. Um, I don't know if it's a finger to the white establishment. I don't know if it's just a way of um, asserting the Asian presence. But you know, um, it's. It's very clever. It's not very clever. It's very, um, how shall I say, straightforward manipulations of your emotions in the sense that, you know, you, you're, you're being built up and you, and you enjoy and relish that sense of revenge that Kevin Kwan is putting through his characters in all these books, right? But Especially if you're an Asian. we love those scenes. We love I it. Mean, yeah. We love comeuppance. The know? best scene in Pretty Woman. Yes, of course. Is when she walks back onto Rodeo Drive and just shoves it in the face of the people who chased her out of the store. Big mistake. Huge, right? Yeah. With, her, with her shopping bags. I yeah. mean, I think people love revenge. People love comeuppance. And um, his books are full of these kind of scenarios. And, you know, you mentioned about the fact that he is highlighting the ultra-rich individuals. It's not a very fashionable thing to talk about at the moment. Maybe not in the but era it, of Trump. It, no, it's not. But at the same time, it's just something that people just want to know. It's that voyeurism of knowing how these people, these people actually live. And he said that everything that he writes about draws from real-life experiences. Now, I remember in the book In China, Rich Girlfriend, and um, there was an instance of one of the um, uh, newer characters who was um, basically one of the four dies. I hope I pronounced that correctly, but basically second-generation rich Chinese Chinese. And um, he was driving into his Singapore apartment and he drives into what's called an air garage. It's basically an air, you know, a lift for your cars that brings it right up to your sitting room. And I was thinking... That's real though. I, you know, I thought this can't be real, but obviously, you know, like I said, I don't experience these things firsthand, but it's one of those jaw-dropping moments that you just can't, you know, can't forget That's as right. a reader. You can't park your Lamborghini in the basement. <laughs> It's got to be there when you step out of your, your exactly. living room door. Especially right? if you're parking it yourself. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, that's what I love about these books. They are just so outrageous. It's just so over the top in so many ways. 
But at the same time, I think why they have done so well, Uma, it's very simple. The plot device is very simple. He uses a lot of plot. It's a page turner. Of course it is. You I know? mean, so let's <coughs> take rich people problems. This is the brand new book that's coming out. And essentially, <laughs> it is an age-old story that you've heard or seen many times, but within an Asian context. The Nicholas Young comes back. The ailing, ailing matriarch is on her deathbed and he was once her favourite. And he's now the prodigal son. So but of speak. course, everyone is vying for her attention because who's going to get all the money, right? And and that's a story that's played out in, in, in many Hollywood movies and so in much literature. fiction. Mm-hmm. But this time we get to see it from a Singaporean slash Malaysian-ish perspective. And, and you know what? A lot of us have experienced that very similar story. And you don't even have to be uber rich. You just have to have some money and suddenly all the relatives come crawling out of the woodwork, right? And so it's a story that we immediately relate to, irrespective of where we are in the world. And so once he has that hook, he's got you. Absolutely. And um, I think with this book, um, compared to the first two ones, there is a sense of change underfoot. You know, shifting sand, so to speak. Of course, it's like you said, it's an ailing matriarch. Um, and um, Nick Young represents the new generation, you know, the third generation, so to speak. And also interwoven in the stories, I don't know if you noticed, there were these vignettes of how Singapore has changed as well. Exactly. You know, he actually visits one of his um, most favourite childhood haunts, which is, a, if, I, if I remember correctly, a wantan mee stall, which has now been replaced by you know, a shiny new tower, um, a shiny new building. And um, that is a theme that has been underplaying, you know, you know, in this book in some ways. And I guess it's something that maybe, you know, he is cleverly trying to position that, yes, you know, the wealthy... Asian family model is also changing at the same time and they need to adapt and change to how society perceives them, how they actually, you know, use their wealth at the same time. It's um and how they also become in a way um, caretakers of, you know, of, of certain symbols in society. In this case it is the house that is at stake, which is Taisal Park, which is um really the how shall I say the linchpin of of, of of this book and everything that surrounds the drama, you know, uh, within this book at the same time. And that's something that is also immensely universal when talking about rich people, right? That home, that manner, if you will, the Rothschild manner. Right. The home is where everything is rooted. The bloodlines run deep into these walls and bricks and mortar. I want to talk about one of my favorite characters, which is Nick Young's mother. Uh, which is the the, the 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 cliched, cynical, sometimes controlling mother-in-law, and I think she is probably one of the best written characters in all of his books. If right. only because, for me, she doesn't. It's a very, it's a very gentle balance to not make this woman come across as being evil, because she's not evil. She's actually the guardian of the legacy of this family, right? Because. In general, men in these books are useless. Sounds familiar in many Asian societies when you think about it. (laughs) And the women are the ones who actually have to hold the strings of the family together. Mm -hmm. And even when Nick Young brings someone in who is not of the the right blood or whatever, in her mind, she's, of course, trained to think, oh, this is going to ruin us. This is going to tear us apart. Uh, This is not what's right for our family. And in her mind, she's doing absolutely what is best for her family. And I think he does that really, really well without making you hate her. That's that's hard to do. Um, like, I, th- I don't hate her. Do you hate her? 
I think the reason why I actually like this character, Uma, because there are so many caricatures in this book as well. You know, people like um, um, the cousin oh, Eddie Chang. Or yeah, the auntie, Chen, right? You yeah. know, I mean, they're all um, pretty much two-dimensional. Whereas you've got the main characters like Nick Young and Eleanor Song, which is um, Nick's mother, his cousin Astrid Dong, for example. They're much more well-fleshed out. They have their flaws. They have their strengths. And yes, with someone like Eleanor Song, you can understand why... She behaves the way she does because you know her motivations are also revealed. You know there there is a greater reason as to why she's so controlling. There's a greater reason why she's you know so um, incisive in in her views on who's right and not right for Nick and you know every single decision that he makes. And um, no, I I, I of course I don't hate her. You know it's um. I I would even go on to say that the um, matriarch of this family, Shang Sui, she's the grandmother. Some, the grandmother, um, she's someone that's maybe even less likable. And at, at the end of the book, I still can't understand why she's considered likable in some scenarios. Well, 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 she's actually even more controlling because she's aware of her power. Yes, <laughs> and um, despite the fact that you know this book reveals a bit more about her past, and you know, I guess which aims to let us understand why she is the way she is. Um, I couldn't sympathize with her character right till the end of the book. I don't know. I just found her a bit, I don't know, not likable really, Ums. You know, that, that, that's, I no, don't know how right. else to say it. You I know? don't think I found her likable at all. Eleanor, I actually... She's comical in some ways. <laughs> she is, but also maybe because I know people like that in real life. <laughs> and you can relate. And I can relate. And, and it's interesting because as a younger person, you're often unforgiving to these people. Mm-hmm. You don't see the world from their point of view. And, and you often criticize them for being old-fashioned or too traditional and closed off, etc., etc. And then I think when you grow up and you can put yourself in their shoes. You may not necessarily agree with everything they say, but I think you can understand where they're coming from. And I think it is a function of age and experience and I guess a greater understanding of family dynamics. I mean, with this book as well, Uma, um, I, I find that, you know, that there are those bigger than life scenarios. For example, you have the, um, there's this, there's this, uh, that whole set piece that was in India which evolves a proposal. Not gonna say who is it with, but you know. I, I love. I love that they went to India to do it. Did right? you know? What I mean, and and I do feel that the thing with Kevin Kwan's writing, right from the first book, he writes with a movie in mind. Do oh, you feel that way? For sure, I'm. I'm convinced that they're cinematic. He he's writing screenplays because at the end of every chapter there is a well. First of all, there's a clear first act, second act, third act. There's a clear B plot. And all of the all of the makings of a screenplay are there, mm. and it's very very linear in that way as well. And of course, the descriptions are very vivid at the same time in terms of how things look like, which is great for a reader because then you can paint the picture in your mind. But also, you know, you do get the feeling, ah, okay, he set this up for a movie. Do you do you find that annoying as a reader? No, because. I think I like literary novels, but I also like the novels that are quite cinematic. I know when some critics use the word cinematic to describe a novel, they mean it in a derogatory way. Mm -hmm. I don't. I think it goes a long way, novels like this, to get the uninitiated reader excited about books. And that's why I'm a big fan of those novels that are cinematic. Also, hey man, this is is supposed to be one of those fast-moving, fast-paced novels it's not it's not michael shabon it's not don delilo it's none of that i mean it's got a very clear purpose in mind it's it's the fast and the furious model <laughs> of of novels, of novels in right it knows exactly what it needs to deliver it knows what its audience wants and it gives me exactly that what do you think of the footnotes 
the copious ah, footnotes okay. in every single book. And, you know, sometimes he actually um, speaks to the reader and talks about, oh, no, I wouldn't do that kind of, um, yes. you know, I wouldn't take that decision if, if I were him, you know, blah, blah, that kind of thing. He gives social commentary from his perspective um, as Kevin Kwan, I it's imagine. It's a little odd. I'm not necessarily a fan of footnotes in general mm. in these kinds of novels. I also would like to think that we've gone beyond it uh, in, in that a lot of the time the footnotes are for the Western audience, right? It's it's published in the UK and the US and when you have footnotes or italicized text in novels, it's meant for, what is Nasi Luma? Oh, <laughs> allow me to explain in footnote number seven, you know? I find it detracts from my reading experience. That's one. Secondly, I think we've gone beyond it. I think right? there's enough, maybe enough Asian popular culture in America and the UK. I mean, the UK, especially with Indian culture, I think there's enough that you don't have to explain every small thing. Yes, and you know, everyone's got Google on their fingertips. Correct. I think you can easily find out what Nasi Lemak is. I mean, there's that and there's a model of Vikram Seth, for example. Um, you don't know, explain anything. Yeah, who don't, even though your book is a thousand anything. pages. Absolutely. You know, I didn't know what Nimbu Pani was, but now I do know what it is. You know, and a <laughs> lot of different nuances in Indian life. But, you know, um, I think... It, 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 that is also jarring in some ways in terms of the reading experience because you do kind of, kind of have to figure out and stop what's happening. But I don't know. I think I think it's almost like a Southeast Asian predilection to always want to explain themselves to white colonialists, maybe. I don't know if that's a hangover. From also, this is not me. This is the character in the book. Yes, exactly. You know, that needs to explain everything like a tourism brochure. I, th- I think you're right. I think we need to be, you know, um, a bit more confident and assertive of our own culture to that, understand, to know that people actually are exposed to a lot of things that, um, that, that being are being said, mentioned. I don't know if it was his decision or the decision of the publisher or the editor. It, there's, uh, there's so much process and machinations that absolutely, go into the making absolutely. of a novel, right? But attributed to him nonetheless. It's his name on the it book, is, right? It is, it um, is. Tell me this, tell me this. Why... What explains this success in your mind? From crazy rich Asians to China rich girlfriend to rich people problems, there's there's something, right? I haven't, I think I've put my finger on it, but the whole this this Asian surge, if you will, in 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 stuff we see on TV, what is it? Because the popularity means nothing unless it's popular in America. That's how all of these publishing models and broadcast models work. When it works in America, suddenly it's a big deal. I I just think Umar really. Um that it is universal in its themes. I think we've discussed that earlier on, you know, in terms of, you know, filial piety, families coming together, you know, something has happened and people, you know, just forces coming together in coming up with solutions, um, you know, different uh, distinctions between degrees of societies and how people are trying to work out through all those intricacies. I think that's quite universal in any society setting. But the fact that it's Asian, but Asian in an accessible way, it's not exotic. It's not, you know, something that Amy Tan might write about, you know, in some far-flung corner of China. Right. You know, it's not a historical novel. There's it's nothing re- supernatural There's here. nothing supernatural here. It's really all about an Asian family um, who works through their struggles that also involves the Western world. And it is very globalised in all his books. You know, the characters travel from all, of, all over the parts of the world, maybe more like um, a glossy travel brochure again. But, you know, there is that sense of being able to relate with the characters. I think that's, that's um, that position that he's coming from is what made it so popular and relatable. So here's my theory. I think it came at a time, and it came at the right time, when we were just tired of seeing rich white people. 
<laughs> and somehow seeing rich colored people of whatever color made it better, made it more palatable. Because they are Asians and they may have the color of what we usually associate with the underdog, but these people are far from being the underdog in any way, right? I mean, there's a great little, uh, both Azura and I were reading the advanced reader's copy and there's a great little note from the editor where they talk about uh, first world problems versus rich people problems and it's on a completely different level. So yeah, don't, I mean, these people should not invoke any form of sympathy from you. Absolutely. <laughs> because they just don't deserve it. You know, if, if they're like caring for their arowana fish much more than for their own <laughs> offspring, you know, <laughs> you got to question their decisions in life. Um, but at the same time, that psychological pull of saying, hey, look, here's what we usually see as the other. Only they're the ones in charge. They're the ones with all the power and they're giving the finger to everyone else. And I, I think also in one of the books, especially China Rich Girlfriend, it kind of demystifies the mystique behind, you know, China's food, yes. right? And giving it a bit more of a human face as opposed to just rich, crass Chinese mainlanders, you know, who don't know how to, you know, bring themselves around in different corners of the world. There's a reason why, why they behave this way and that way. And I think it's that little glimpse that Kevin Kwan um, actually gives, its, gives his readers to this world that's you know, miles apart for many of us, you know, whether we live in the same society as they do or not. Um, it's, it's just voyeuristic, you know. It is. And it's just so um, cringingly good <laughs> to read. And somewhat aspirational, maybe. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have to question, you know, such a person's aspirations. This is what they're actually um, hoping to be. Um, I mean, it's money grabbing around the day. It's um, it's ugly in some in some parts, you know. And, and also, you know, the general message is, rich people are people too, lah. Rich people are people too. They got the same problems. Yes, you know, it's just it might involve a fish, and yours might involve, you know, being able to afford to eat a fish for dinner. <laughs> uh, Azura, thank you very much for joining me and talking about rich people problems. It's been a pleasure. Same here. Uh, next week, I've got the man himself, Kevin Kwan, on the show to talk about rich people problems. So stay tuned for that. This is Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.